with another quarter to three games podcast for, uh, it's the first one of 2017, still in the early days of January. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Pathfinder in any way, shape, or form. Not Pathfinder. Hi, and my name is Randy, but you may know me better as Armando Penblade from the Quarter to Three Forums, and my game of the week is absolutely not Adventure Capitalist. I don't even know what that is. You picked something way more obscure than I, I know what it is. What is Adventure Capitalist? It is one of those terrible click buttons to make numbers go up games, and I might have 1,100 hours on it in Steam. It is the most embarrassing thing in my library. Oh, so it might, it might not be your game of the week, but it might be like your game of the year or something. Maybe of eternity. Those are called clickers, right? Yep. Oh, you're playing a clicker. Uh, Randy, I'm very disappointed in you. Yeah, me too. Okay. okay, as long as you have a the requisite sense of shame about it, that's okay. Um, oh, come on, I was raised Catholic. I've got nothing but shame. <laughs> well, speaking of shame, Randy, you live in a very interesting state. You're there in North Carolina. Uh, has, has Pat McCrory conceded yet? What's going on out there? Uh, you know, uh, one term Pat, as we've taken to call him, he is finally out. Uh, his replacement is in, <clears throat> and he is talking about all the great stuff that he's going to do as governor assuming that we can actually vote in a new legislature that doesn't have a supermajority for the other side. Yeah, I don't. Uh, you, you are much out there in America as it is today, much more than I am out here in California. Uh, and I want to ask you, is this a typical experience in North Carolina? I was there a year, year and a half ago, and I was a friend of mine was like, hey, there's this cool breakfast place I want to take you to. So we're at this breakfast place that he likes, and we're just in a booth sitting there minding our own business, and the, the the conversation turns to politics, and we're talking about who the possible contenders would be for the presidential election. And we got to talking about what would or wouldn't disqualify people. Uh, and I think I said, uh, you know, we were talking about different races, I believe. Like, you know, could an Asian be president? And then we got to talking about religions. There's a point where it was outrageous that, that Kennedy, a Catholic, was president. Uh, and I, I posed the question, do you think a Muslim could ever be president? And before my friend could answer me, the dude in the booth behind me turned around and he said, we already got a Muslim president. Is that typical? Does that happen uh, is that something that you run into a lot in North Carolina? I wish I could say that it wasn't. Um, <clears throat> in, in fairness, I, I live in the Research Triangle Park area. Ah, right. The sole bastion of, of civilization and goodness. That's not quite true, but it's almost entirely true. Um, so around here, particularly in, in my wonderfully gerrymandered, like 95% Democrat district, you could probably talk about a Muslim for president without being shot. But if you drive 30 miles in any direction, I really can't make any guarantees. Yeah. Now, uh, like you, uh, Randy, I come from that neck of the woods. You're originally from Louisiana. You were raised a lot of the time in, in Tennessee. I'm a, I was born in Texas, raised in Arkansas. So I'm very well acquainted with that uh, that, that mentality out there. Uh, uh, what uh, was your childhood like? In so, did you spend most of your time in Louisiana or Tennessee growing up? Uh, mostly in Tennessee. I was uh, I was a baby in Louisiana. It was a little bit of movement that I'm not familiar with because I was uh, a baby. But then mostly Tennessee. Yeah, same with me in Texas and Arkansas then. So uh, what was school like in Tennessee? Um, perfunctory at best. I don't know. Uh, you know, I had a couple of really great teachers that, that had a lot of influence on me in life. They were the few that, that really cared and, and tried and showed us stuff outside of the norm. Uh, but for the most part, it was it was 
rough, sad, underfunded. I, I had a cluster of good friends in the theater and, and choir and band programs, uh, and we had a lot of fun and cut up and, and just tried to kind of make the best of it that we could. But uh, the way I talk about it to people is, you know, where I went to school, uh, in high school, we had three AP courses. That's the advanced placement courses that you can get your college credit. Uh, you know, I had friends that would go to, like, really, really fancy, like, magnet schools and charter schools in other states, and they might have, like, 15 or 16 AP courses. Mm-hmm. We had three. Uh, all of which have now, from what I understand, been removed and replaced with classes at the local community college that don't really transfer anywhere. So not not much in the way of opportunity. I feel pretty lucky to have gotten out. Now, you were a theater kid. I was, yeah. Not a very good one, but... Were, were you one of the actor kids, or were you like uh, doing the, the stage work behind the scenes, or in what capacity were you a theater kid? So I did have a couple of uh, speaking roles. Uh, at one point, I actually uh, played a king, marrying off uh, the princess, my daughter, being played by my girlfriend at the time, to my best friend at the time. So That's, that's really creepy, Randy. I'm creeped out. Yeah, it was strange. I'm not going to lie. Um, but for the most part, I actually I preferred uh, writing. So every year, uh, our, our theater teacher would help put on something called Evening with the Arts, which was one of the few really cool things our school did. And um, you know, most kids would do like play a song on acoustic guitar or read a poem. My friends and I would put on a 10 or 15 minute play and we did parodies of Star Wars and Lord of the Rings that were so, so bad and yet really awesome. <laughs> That's what I was going to ask is tell me about one of your productions. So basically uh, parodies of geek culture, it sounds like. Exactly, yeah. So, um, so, you know, when I was in high school, the Lord of the Rings movies were coming out, uh, and I had an enormous afro. So uh, it was King of the Ring, and I played the lead character, Mofro the Hobbit, uh, who was on a great quest. And it sort of went downhill from there, if you can imagine that. That does sound a little painful, yeah. Yeah, So yeah. You, you were writing for yourself. You were a, uh, at least a double threat, a writer and an actor. Yeah, and I guess theoretically I was the director, too, although I don't know if we had much in the way of direction. <laughs> Uh, so uh, you have now – what you do now is you work uh, giving teachers additional experience with uh, with STEM uh, – not careers, but, uh, but I guess uh, – and we'll explain what you do. You, you, you help teachers uh, with STEM training, right? That's correct. Uh, so basically we take uh, local school teachers here in North Carolina from anywhere in the state, any grade level, any subject area, and uh, we actually put them into real STEM workplaces and laboratories at universities and companies all across the state. Uh, they get some real-world experience for a few weeks in the summer. Then they come back to us and get a bunch of training in technology, pedagogy, leadership, uh, politics. We teach them how to approach their representatives and, and sort of avail themselves of the opportunities that are available to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then the ideal goal is they go back to their classroom, they write some awesome curriculum based on what they learned, and they sort of act like a, a force multiplier is a term we've used in our marketing materials in the past. They they go out and they make all the other teachers around them better and therefore hopefully give their students a better education in the process. Uh, when I, ha- I have to admit, Randy, when I hear false force multiplier, I, th- I think of a, a military application for that term. Yeah, well, you know, uh, they they always say that school is a bit of a war zone. So, <laughs> uh, now, so real quick, STEM is it a science, tech, engineering, math? Is that the deal? Got it in one. Uh, then what is uh, you mentioned pedagogy, pedagog or pe- pedagogy? Wait, what do you? Ped- I know what a pedagog is, but what, what was the word you used? 
I've, I, at work, I've heard people use both pedagogy and pedagogy. I will admit, I don't have a background in education, so to all the teachers that they're listening, I'm sorry that one of those was wrong. Um, uh, that well, what, does that, what does that even mean? Like, I know what a demagogue is. What, what does that even mean? So that's essentially the art of teaching. So it's, it's um, you know, like, how do you structure your lessons? How do you engage with your students? Are you, uh, do you go with that kind of like, what is it, uh, Plato was always asking people questions instead of giving them answers, that kind of thing? Or do you give them projects to work on? So, you know, that's... Ideal, the ideal classroom today is not 50 kids in straight rows and desks staring straight ahead and taking notes while their teacher talks for two hours. If you're doing that, you are not up to date on your pedagogy slash pedagogy. Sorry, okay. teachers. Um, so we're trying to help them be a little more active and draw a little bit more from their kids. Now, can you trace for me roughly how you went from uh, a, a kid at Boston University studying journalism to what you're doing now? Sure. Uh, it makes absolutely no sense and it's entirely random. Mm -hmm. uh, so I graduated in 2009 with a print journalism degree. The story I like to tell is that whenever I started at Boston University, the uh, Boston Globe made about an $80 million profit that year. By the time I graduated, they lost $86 million in that calendar year. Um, so turns out that coming out in Boston with a journalism degree at that time, not super useful. <laughs> so I moved back home, lived with my parents, uh, applied to a bunch of journalism jobs and got none of them. Um, by chance, my dad, while literally dismantling the computer systems that he had worked on his entire life uh, and was uh, in Europe helping them set up the next-gen replacements, became friends with a, with a low-level tech guy over there, as, as I remember the story of him telling it to me. Uh, eventually, apparently that low-level tech guy went on to become like the vice president of technology in Europe for a large U.S. banking company. Um, and uh, he was able to basically get my resume pulled out of the trash, and I worked for two years as technical support for credit card payment systems, which had nothing to do with journalism. Mm -hmm. Whenever uh, it came time to leave Tennessee, and I followed my partner out here to North Carolina so she could pursue her own education further, I uh, found that there were no payment card system companies who apply to out here, nor was journalism doing any better, and I started temping at the local uh, university and kind of fell into this, this STEM outfit that I was talking about who had just fired their previous secretary and thought that I seemed like I was a pretty okay guy. And what was supposed to be like a four-week-long commitment has turned into a five-year-long career. So. Sure. Uh, and that, that print journalism degree is probably still as useful as it was the day you graduated. I'd say, you know, it might have even appreciated a little bit. You know, that paper by now, you know, I don't know if they make that stock really commonly. I could probably, you know, recycle that or something. Uh, uh, sure Randy, which of us? I'm just wondering which of us would have the more useless degree because my degree is in uh, religious studies. It's just a blah blah liberal arts kind of thing. You have what should be a more practical degree in a, something that doesn't really exist anymore. Uh, I, I think we're kind of on par with who has the most useless degree here. Well, you know, theoretically, theoretically, if you think about it, Tom, uh, there's certainly a lot of interesting religious things happening in the world right now. Maybe you have some additional insight there. And theoretically, I could get a job writing about how all terrible all that is. It's just that I'm not sure either of us would get paid very much for it. Yeah, exactly right. In terms of the whole making a living business. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think we'd be better off getting a vocational training with like a cotton gin or something be the equivalent to that. You know, you're probably right. And you know, I apologize. I have, to, I have to take one quick step back to that job question you asked me because I have to give a shout-out to my favorite place on Earth. Is that all right? Wow, your favorite place on Earth. I do want to know what this is. Yes, please shout-out okay. to it. 
Fantastic. So when I was a kid, I went to a summer camp, like an academic summer camp. And during college, I went back there and worked for them. So I have a background in education. I didn't just fall into education totally randomly. This place is called Vampy. It's the summer camp for verbally and mathematically precocious youth because they let the very first class name it. And of course, they would name it that. <laughs> um, it's run by the Center for Gifted Studies out of uh, the Western Kentucky University in Central Kentucky. Go figure. Uh, and it is an awesome program, and, and it literally changed my life, completely turned it around. And so I went back and worked for them for five summers, hoping that I could do the same. And it's, it's heaven on earth for a nerdy kid. And they're still going strong. <clears throat> Absolutely. Uh, I think 30-plus years later. I went to summer camp at a, a goofball, super hardcore fundamentalist Baptist summer camp. That sounds less fun. Way less fun. Way less fun. We did have... Uh, I think we had jet skis. Do you have jet skis at Vampy? You know, there were no jet skis, but there was a lot of Magic the Gathering. And I know one of those is... <laughs> <most likely. laughs> yeah, I think I'd, I'd rather stick with the jet skis at this point. Uh, you, you do have to get converted, though. Like, by the time you're done with uh, religious summer camp, you get saved by Jesus and you go home. I mean, I've got no problem with that. That's fine for some folks. But uh, you then go home and you proselytize to your friends and your parents, and it lasts, you know, a week or two. And then you go back to being normal. <laughs> Yep, that sounds pretty much exactly right. Uh, so you're uh, – oh, and I, so I also wanted to give you a hard time for this. Your partner – real quick, what is the current protocol in terms of calling someone a partner versus a girlfriend? Because you've used partner a couple of times. So she and I have been together for 13 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not married. We may be eventually someday if it ever becomes reasonable from a tax perspective. Uh we love each other to bits. We don't plan on never breaking up. But uh, I don't know. Part, eventually calling somebody a girlfriend after 13 years almost seems a little too simplistic, right? So we look for something with a little bit more heft to it. Because the problem is when you say partner, uh, and this – did you see American Beauty by, by any chance? It's pretty obscure. But, uh, when, the- yeah, when, when uh, uh, Chris Cooper is this super homophobic guy, and when uh, one of his neighbors talks about a partner, Chris Cooper assumes he's talking about a law firm. He doesn't realize he's talking about being in a gay relationship. Uh, so when you say partner, I'm thinking, oh, Randy's like a lawyer, and uh, he's got his own firm. <laughs> you know, people uh, people may very well make some assumptions there, and I'm pretty okay with that. Well, she does work. Here's what I wanted to give you a hard time about. Mm-hmm. She mm-hmm. works in big pharma. Randy. I know, I know. In fairness, she had she had grand dreams of going on and, and just becoming a pure academic and, and living in an ivory tower for all time. That, no, that's, that's not true. So she she is a linguist by trade, um, and particularly specializes in sociolinguistics. And you know, she has this strong passion for learning about language, and moreover, kind of helping to, uh, especially she wanted to really be able to help inform education, like uh, help like testing firms design tests that aren't so discriminatory based on language and that kind of thing. And it's a subject you know, she way she knows way more about than I do. I don't want to, you know, mess up anything by, by describing it incorrectly, but she's brilliant and, and she loves it. But, uh, you know, we were talking about worthless degrees and stuff. Turns out Big Pharma apparently has a great need for linguists in translation coordination, making sure that all the, the manuals and materials they produce as part of their, their medicines and testing practices, you know, make it between different countries and languages correctly. And she does a very good job at that. And, Bakes notice them more than I do. It's a global economy, Randy. Yeah. Uh, does she specialize in, in some language or another? Like, is she bilingual or is she just general languages? Uh, Spanish uh, is uh, the, the secondary language for her. Um, but she, she, le- she learns about a lot of different ones. 
to be fair to her, though, I think given the size of the medical industry in the United States, uh, probably if you were to throw a rock, you would hit someone who either works for or is affiliated with Big Pharma somehow indirectly. Uh, so I, I, I hereby – it's okay with me if she does that. Lots of people do it. Um, so fair enough. Yep, yep. You know, it's, it's cool. Uh, your family is uh, on your mother's side from Guatemala. Have you been to Guatemala? I have. Uh, not in a long time, though. What is it like? It is a lovely country. It's got all sorts of really cool traditions, and and you know, like you know, obviously the Mayan people there, and, and all their history is great. You know, the jungles and the huge temples is all amazing, and the the huge city, Guatemala City, is great. And at the moment, I'm a little bit terrified of going back because there's a ton of crime. It's you know, it's a Central American nation that's kind of recovering from a from a few decades of really bad stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's a little sad to think about right now. You know, it's just you know, there's there's a lot of murder, a lot of robbery, that kind of thing. But uh, I remain hopeful it'll, you know, kind of pull back a little bit, and I can go back someday soon. Mm-hmm. When was the last time you were there? Like as a kid? Gosh, um, it's been more than ten years at this point, at least. Uh, is there good? I think there's good scuba diving in Guatemala. Is that right? Uh, you know, there might be. I, I can't swim, so I really can't speak to that. <laughs> oh, wait a minute! You can't swim? No, I can't swim. Randy, wait a minute! You've never like. Aren't you nervous around swimming pools then? What if you were to fall in the water? Um, I think I would die. Why can't you swim? Don't all kids like learn how to swim at some point? What happened to your childhood that you never learned how to swim? I actually took swimming lessons as a little kid um, and thought it went well. And then a few years later, went to a pool uh, – you know, uh, with with like a summer program I was staying at the, at my mom's job, and figured, oh yeah, I took swimming lessons. I totally know what I'm doing, and hopped into the pool, and obviously did not know what I was doing, and nearly drowned. So ever since then, I've kind of just given up on the concept. Like, did someone have to pull you out? Like, embarrassed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh yeah, oh yeah. Like the full on like lifeguard, you know, like whoa. dragging me out and gasping for air. Yeah, it was great. Is that ever awkward for you that you can't swim? Like where people are like, hey, we're going to go to the swimming hole. Randy, you want to come along? Like, does that ever impact your day-to-day life? Yeah, it might surprise you, Tom, that the guy who's here to give you a talk on a tabletop RPG doesn't get asked to go to the swimming hole very often. <laughs> uh, okay, if we're ever on a cruise, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, and the ship goes down, it's going to be uniquely terrifying for you. Like you're going to be, if we're all left bobbing in the water, you're going to be one of the first ones to go. It's terrible. You know, it's true, yeah, yeah. But on the flip side, you know, I've seen Titanic. Like, I know what happens to guys in the water. Like, we're we're pretty much doomed anyway, so. Yeah, that's true, right. Yeah. Uh, all right, so I want to talk, before we talk about this tabletop gaming, because I uh, am a complete outsider to what you're going to talk about, so you're going to have to explain a lot to me. Uh, real quick, I want to touch on uh, two things about entertainment. Uh, what was your favorite video game of last year? Now, you haven't voted in the thread, but you said that I might be surprised at what you would choose as your favorite video game. Yeah, so my favorite video game of 2016 is none, because I'm reasonably confident I haven't played a video game released in 2016. I don't believe that for a second. What's the last? Come on, you've, you're at a computer right now, right? What games are installed on the computer you're sitting at? Oh, there's a ton of them installed, just kind of sitting there. And the only ones you play are like old ones? Is that the idea? Um, I played a few. Oh, wait, no, no, no. I take that back. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, Tom. There is technically one game that came out this year that I have, in fact, installed and played. Can I guess? Halcyon. Go ahead. Oh, I forgot. You You started to say the word Halcyon, so I think I, uh, I was going to guess The Witcher Blood and Wine. What game begins with Halcyon? 
Halcyon 6, Starbase Commander. Oh, yeah, yeah, the little, uh, it's like an RPG thing, and you fly the ships around, and the portals open, and aliens come in, and, and you have the turn-based combat, that thing, right? Yeah, it's like somewhere between, like, comedy Star Trek, Star Control, and uh, Final Fantasy, if you can believe yeah. that. It's great, I love it. And super finicky, well, not finicky, uh, finicky's probably the right, really detailed combat. Yeah, super detailed combat, both between ships and also between the little red shirts who die horribly. Uh, did you uh, uh, beat it? Like, did you resolve the little storyline? Because it, it's it's made to be. It's not like a big, massive twenty-hour opus, right? Like, it's made to get through the storyline and then try again, almost roguelike, right? Yeah, pretty much. I did not finish it. Um, I got, uh, I, I think, probably like a third of the way through or so, and then I was reading that they were gonna have like a bunch of extra, like stuff coming out, um, like you know, like extra crew members and ships and stuff like that as part of the the rewards for the Kickstarter that did so well. So I figured I would like kick back and get back to it later. That was in September, and that was the last time I played a game on Steam. That is a real pitfall of this model of like releasing all this post-release support. Is they announce something and you're like, well, maybe I should hold off until that comes out. Like I was going to get back into. You probably don't know about the video games that came out last year, Randy, but one came out called XCOM 2, uh, and I was going to get back into playing it. But just today, the publishers announced, hey, these mod workers that we hired, they've got a big, huge mod in the works, and we're going to be releasing more info about it in the coming days. So I think, oh, well, maybe I should hold off and wait for that to come out. Uh, so it almost dissuades you from playing a game, doesn't it? It really kind of does. I, I've always been – this is weird because I'm bad at games, but I've always been like a little bit of a completionist with my games. Mm-hmm. Like I would, have, I would have friends come over and beat my racing games better for me so I could have all the cars. <laughs> so, so in this era of like DLC and constant post-release support, it's actually like a little nerve-wracking for me to get into a game thinking, but there's so much stuff out there that I can't possibly own because it's $700 worth of DLC. What do I do now? Yeah. Uh, do you- do you know if Halcyon 6 Starbase Commander has any DLC? Like, have they released anything yet? I, I'm, I'm literally actually clicked onto the Steam page right now, and according to this, there's a Diplomatic Diversions free DLC that apparently I already own, so go me. All right, well, you're ready to jump back in and uh, also make it your game of 2017, perhaps, by default. I think it'll have to be. Yeah. All right, before we get into the super geeky tabletop RPG thing... Uh, mm-hmm. What's a superhero show I should watch on TV? You said you're an aficionado of bad superhero comic book TV. Uh, I have not seen, let's see, I haven't seen like that Daredevil or Luke Cage or Jessica Jones stuff. Uh, I've watched a few episodes of Supergirl. Uh, I haven't seen any of the Green Arrow, Flash stuff. I haven't seen any of that. Uh, Gotham City, don't know the first thing about it. What is a bad superhero TV show that I should watch? You should absolutely watch The Flash. I would say Supergirl, but you've already started it, so just commit and finish it because it's awesome. But The Flash is everything I love about superhero TV. It's it rejoices in all like the joy of being a superhero. It's like super campy. It's brightly colored like a four panel comic. Uh, the lead actor is ultra charming. The villains are ludicrously over the top and wonderfully stupid. It's awesome. Uh, and The Flash just go. He runs really fast. What? I, I, that just doesn't seem very spectacular to me. You know, you, you would think it's not, but you know, he can also make tornadoes. And if he runs really, really fast and touches his own, like, speed lightning bolts that are running behind him that you just thought were a CGI effect, oh, no, my friend. They're real, and he can throw them. What? <laughs> he, he can throw lightning bolts? But only if he can catch them. <laughs> All right. Well, now i got to see how this works out. Who is the lead actor? Would I know him from anything? 
Uh, it's Grant Gustin. Apparently he was in Glee, uh, along with uh, Melissa, I assume, Benoist. Benoit? Dunno. I mean, I think uh, it's Benoist. Like, I was wondering, are you supposed to put a French twist on her name? And I don't think you do. I think it is just Benoist, I believe. Yeah. Gotcha. Uh, so she Wait, was also in Glee. She is from Glee. I did not realize that. Yep. Ah. All right. So Glee, we're basically farming our superheroes out of the cast of Glee. Huh. Yeah, and I mean, I think the show ran for like, what, like 10 years or something? So really, we've got like enough superhero content for a couple decades. Now, how far along is this Flash thing? I'm guessing, what, like third season or something probably, right? Yeah, third season, currently on hiatus for the for the winter break. Oh, Randy, that's way too much TV for me. I haven't even seen The Wire yet. I can't start watching something about a silly dude who runs super fast. I mean, you know, would you rather watch a show about like a bunch of like cops and criminals dying horribly or a show about like a really smiley guy running around and throwing lightning? I mean, you know, it's your life, but I I've kind of, you know, I don't know if you know this about me, Randy, but I'm pretty dark and edgy. So I'm going to choose the one about the cops and the criminals and, uh, you know, I, I, Baltimore. Let's just see how awful Baltimore is, because I think that's what The Wire is about. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's actually what shows up in like the Netflix description. Uh, did you see La La Land by any chance? I didn't. Yeah. Uh, anybody who loves La La Land as much as I do, it's a, it's a charming, goofy musical. Uh, I have no claim to being dark and edgy ever because uh, <laughs> how much I adore that movie. You, you sort of lose all that dark and edginess when you like La La Land that much. Gotcha. Uh, okay, so let's get – so you were a theater kid. It makes sense that you would grow up into someone who sits around a table, uh, and I'm just going to do an impression. You tell me how close this is. Fire away. Okay, so you walk into the tavern, and the tavern keeper's like, uh, there's an adventure for you to go on, uh, and if you do it, I'll give you a magic sword and talk to this elf over here, and he'll tell you that you have to kill a dragon. Well, okay, what do you say? There you go. That, that was my impression of you or anyone as a dungeon master. How out of touch am I, Randy? Uh, I will say this, Tom. You are tragically in touch with a small number of very bad game masters. <laughs> There, there are definitely people who will start any campaign exactly that way, and I, I, I will have to say that I would not play under any of them. So uh, a couple of, because I do know enough about tabletop RPG, and from when I was a kid, I certainly grew up with D and D, and it was a huge creative outlet for me. Uh, uh, but I, it seems to me that you're either, and maybe I'm wrong about this, you're either always a game master or always a player. Because if you're a game master and if you care about, it, if you're a DM. It sucks being a player because you're so analytical and it's so difficult. Uh, you're so critical of, of other people's DMing. Uh, so as a guy who really liked running games, I really had a hard time playing them. Uh, is that divide uh, there for you? Is that something that you, that you experience with other pe- people who play these tabletop RPGs? So what I actually find, so I'm, I'm really lucky in the area that I live in, there's this really great RPG collective, uh, the Raleigh Tabletop Role Players, uh, which is huge. It's got like a couple hundred active members, and oh. they, they run uh, like like these long, like season-long arcs in different game systems. They have big quarterly events. They're hooked into like all the Pathfinder Society stuff. It's great. So I'm really lucky to be a part of that. And there's a cluster of us who do most of the GMing. And what I find is it's not necessarily because we all hate to play. In fact, most of us love to play when we get the chance. It's more that since there's not nearly as many people who are interested in GMing, if you want to have games running at all, the people who like doing it or at least can tolerate doing it kind of get stuck doing it a lot. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, Personally, Uh, I love to play. And I actually am playing in a couple of campaigns at any given time, so I'm, I'm lucky to get to do both. So the system you mentioned that you use, I have never even heard of. Uh, 
tell me what it is and why you're using that instead of, say, D&D or Pathfinder or something. Sure thing. So I, in the last few years, have fallen completely in love with a system called Fate Core. Uh, it's published by a group called Evil Hat, uh, done by a couple of, you know, old school gamer guys who've been running games for, you know, a couple decades at least now. Uh, and it is based off of an even older system called Fudge that doesn't matter because I've never played it, so I can't talk about it with any real usefulness. Um, I, too, got my start in D&D. Uh, I was playing second and third ed with friends back in high school and at that camp I mentioned at Vampy. Uh, whenever I first moved to Raleigh, I started GMing uh, a campaign in my own personal fantasy world using Pathfinder, which is sort of a even more complicated D&D offshoot. And I'll tell you that after years and years of that stuff, I just kind of got dragged down because it felt like it was nothing but like plus 17 this and do a little bit of calculus that and wizards are always more powerful than fighters and, you know, buy this $75 monster manual if you want to continue the adventure, insert coin now. It was just always complicated, always weighing me down. And as a GM, I felt like I was oftentimes fighting to remember rules more than I was telling interesting stories and having fun with my friends. And I think I can still have a lot of fun with Pathfinder in a certain respect, and I think D&D is a great game, but I was looking for something a little bit looser and a little bit less weighty. Now, before we talk about Fate Core real quick, why is Pathfinder so big? Do you have a sense for why? It's it really got its kickoff because uh, it came out around the same time that D and D Fourth Ed came out, and for those who aren't familiar, Fourth Ed introduced a bunch of changes, and it went from this kind of the kind of system that inspired games like Baldur's Gate and Temple of Elemental Evil on the computer uh, to being almost like a tabletop miniatures war game. It was all about moving the pieces on the boards and doing these big flashy anime inspired super moves, and to a lot of people, it felt a lot less like D and D and more like I don't know World of Warcraft or something. So you had a lot of angry nerds, which is the problem that we seem to have a lot of these days. Uh, and they were looking for something more like what they remembered. And Pathfinder shows up basically just being a branch of the D&D third and a half edition rules, cleaned up, tidied up with a bunch of stuff thrown in by the company that made it, Paizo, uh, who are releasing content at a ridiculous rate. And all these gamers who wanted nothing to do with fourth ed said, that's our system. And they moved straight into it, and they've been locked in ever since. So you were with that briefly, but you said you feel like it, it sort of uh, – you, you feel dragged down by it. It's a bit much. Uh, so you find this Fate Core thing. Uh, now, is Fate Core – would people listening go, oh, yeah, I know what Fate Core is, or is it obscure? If, uh, if the person's hooked into the RPG community, like you know, if, if they have done more than play D&D with some friends in their basement when they were 16, then they probably are familiar with Fate Core. Okay. Uh, about three or four years ago, it was a gold medal winner for RPG of the Year and Rule System of the Year at the Emmys, which is sort of like the big RPG industry awards. Um, it's got a ton of momentum behind it. It also powers, uh, basically it's the rules basis for a bunch of licensed property games uh, like Atomic Robo based off the popular comic series, um, Dresden Files, uh, that, that really awesome series of, uh, of urban fantasy novels I've never really read. So Fate Core is definitely out there, and of the kind of like second-class indie RPGs that come after D&D and Pathfinder, I would say it's definitely like in the upper echelon of knowledge and okay. fame. Now, uh, so explain what it is then that you prefer about Fate Core over something like Pathfinder that's more popular. Sure thing. Uh, so Fate Core is what I would call like a story-driven generic RPG, which, again, super RPGs, 
those terms mean stuff. Otherwise, what it basically means is it's a game that's focused first and foremost on the stories and the characters in them. So it's all about getting the players wrapped up in their own story, showing off their really cool abilities, complicating their heroes' lives in, in really interesting, fun ways, and always constantly rolling forward. So it's not about double-checking whether or not you have you know the encumbrance left over to pick up three more gold coins before your character gets a minus three penalty to strength and can no longer move in his heavy armor. It's all about more, uh, you are so weighed down by gold coins that the dragon snaps you up in its mouth. What do you do next? It, it skips all the crap and just moves straight to the fun. And then it's a generic system insofar as it can really run a game in almost any setting uh, featuring almost any kind of character. Uh, some people might hear generic system and kind of flinch. They're going to think back like to the, to the battle days with a system like GURPS, which is actually a lot better than people give it credit for. But GURPS was the system that sort of said, we'll give you enough tables and math equations to suck the fun out of any genre you can imagine. Um, fate is, is way more about, we will give you the tools you need to tell any cool story you can think of. And okay, it enables so me to do so. I, I want to jump in here then. As a, as a systems guy... Uh, mm -hmm. One of the reasons I love I love board games, uh, ultimately because of the stories they tell uh, with my friends, and it's very similar to I think what a lot of people look for in tabletop games. But I like stories to emerge from rules and systems. I guess I, I would be I don't know if this exists in Fate Core, but I would kind of be like a, a lawful neutral character when it comes to my gaming experiences. Uh, when you say it's not about can you pick up those last three gold coins. Uh, and if you do, you're encumbered in your heavy armor. I hear that, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. There's a trade-off, how much you can carry, how much armor you're sporting. Uh, that sounds, believe it or not, Randy, quote-unquote fun to me. Uh, so so would, what does Fate Core do to tell me to create a system where if I've got heavy armor, I can't carry as much gold as someone who doesn't have heavy armor? Uh, like That stuff is in there, right? Absolutely is. It's just basically choose to focus on the parts of games that are interesting to you. Um, so Fate Core's base systems uh, come in. I'm going to go. I'm going to try to break this into as few parts as I can. The biggest one is something called aspects. Aspects are basically phrases or sentences that the players and GM make up to describe their characters, the setting, and the story. And whenever you create that aspect. It remains true for the entire time it's in play. So if your character is in heavy armor, your character probably has an aspect like heavily armored super warrior. Um, and so, now, are these aspects like chosen from a menu, or do the players and, uh, and the, the GM work them out together? Like, do I look at a list of aspects and say, I want this one and that one and that one? A lot of the licensed systems will provide you some suggested aspects, but I think it's a lot more fun to make them up on your own, and the system is kind of built on the assumption that you will. Okay. So you should totally try to make your aspect as powerful and cool-sounding as possible because you want to play a powerful, cool character. But the trick with aspects is they can be used for you or against you. So I'm going to move into the next chunk of the game, which is fate points. Uh, fate points are sort of the economy of the game. And you can cash in your little cache of fate points to invoke your aspects for a benefit, give you a small bonus on a roll, maybe re-roll if the roll went really terrible, or even introduce a new minor element of plot to the game world based off of one of your aspects. But you're going to run out of fate points pretty quick. You only start with three at most. The way you get them back is the GM looks at your aspects and the aspects of the world around you and tries to complicate your life with them. So if you're the heavily armored super warrior and your cast of characters is running away from a dragon, the GM might give you a sly look, hold a fate point in front of your face and say, you know, you're in pretty heavy armor. Do you really think you can outrun a 700-year-old dragon that's been chasing down adventurers for its entire life? Take the fate point. He gets a gobble at you. 
don't take the fate point, you might get away, but then you're costing yourself a free resource. It's a little bit of a risk-reward thing. You decide like how far you want to push things. Exactly, yeah. And eventually, if you run entirely out of fate points and that bad roll comes up, you've got nothing to save you. So building up a stock of them, taking those complications when you can hear about it and plan around it in the first place, may be better than getting an unexpected fail later on. So then what does a fate core character sheet look like? Are there numbers? Do I have stats for, for strength and whatnot? Yep, there absolutely are some numbers, and that's kind of the third and final big chunk of the system, which are skills and stunts. Um, and this is where it's a genericized system. So rather than, say, picking warrior and getting strength, uh, you'll have a list. Most games have about 20, maybe 25 skills, things like melee combat, magic, academics, medicine, athletics, will, physique, that kind of stuff. Descriptive terms that dictate how you interact with the world. And you can put uh, points into them. Your character has like a little pyramid, so you have one plus four skill you're super good at, and a handful of plus one skills, and then some in between. Uh, the, da- the dice that you're rolling are called fate or fudge dice, and they're D6 dice, 600 dice, with two plus sides, two minus sides, and two blank sides. So whenever you roll four of those, you're going to get a result between negative four and positive four, but it's going to cluster in a normal distribution around zero. So for stuff that you have really few skill points in, you're usually not going to get a high number. For stuff that you have a lot of skill points in, you can kind of guarantee a high number. That's the stuff your character's really good at. And from there, it's on you as a player to kind of try to uh, justify to the GM exactly why your guy with plus four melee combat can totally use melee combat to pick this lock. <laughs> as so, compared to crappy plus one burglary. Yeah, but that's not good. You wouldn't let that fly, would you? How, you're not going to let melee a melee combat guy pick a lock. Oh, well, I totally might let him pick a lock if I say, you know, sure, but your difficulty is going to be pretty high, and if you mess up, you're probably going to make a ton of noise and get some guards coming at you. Sound right, good? He's, not, he's not using his melee skill to pick the lock. I see what you're saying. He can try oh, it. He's, right. I see well, he's, he's picking the lock up and smashing it to pieces, right? <laughs> Randy, that stuff's being picking a lock now. That's where you get into bashing the lock open. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you, you D&D kids in your terminology, all right? Right, right. Um, anyways, so yeah, that, so that's basically the basis of the system. You have stunts that can modify your skills. They're kind of like feats in D&D. Um, but, you know, those three things, aspects, fate points, and skills, sort of are the basis of your character sheet, and that's most of what's on there. Now, as for uh, this system you've just described to me, uh, what does it take to buy into it? Is there one general fate core book? Like I – at some point, Randy, I ended up on a press list for Paizo's – uh, some of their their Pathfinder print stuff, and every now and then I get sent this really huge, thick textbook with you know it's it's hardbound, it's got these glossy sheets, four color printing, uh, you know the little press release in it says it's got like a an MSRP of like eighty nine ninety nine, uh, and it's obscene. And I, I get these for weird little. They don't send me all of them, but every now and then, out of the blue, one of them shows up for some weird campaign or some, you know, you mentioned specific monster manuals. Uh, I can completely understand how this could be just oppressive to someone who wants to play a Pathfinder system. Uh, What does it take to get into the basic system that you described in Fate Core? Uh, So Google Evil Hat. Uh, or I guess it's probably just evilhat.com, probably. I don't know. Uh, and then go to the Fate Core section of the website and uh, click Buy Now. It's pay what you want. Put in $0 and download the PDF. Uh, that's, the, that's the bare minimum level of commitment they're asking of you, is to visit their website and click the Download button. Oh. Well, how do they make money then? 
<laughs> so they make money because as part of their, their big, super successful Kickstarter, they got to do a bunch of other cool side projects, like a systems toolkit for GMs to figure out how to hack the system to different genres. Um, they themselves have produced a bunch of little interesting games. Uh, there's one, uh, it's like The Secret Lies of Cats or The Magic Lies of Cats, about magical cats protecting the world from monsters. They've got one, Venture City Stories, about superheroes in a place called Venture City. Uh, they co-produced one, Freeport Fake Companion. It's like a fantasy dungeon crawl kind of game. So they sell all these kind of like fate-adjacent products. They sell uh, special dice. You can use regular old D6s and just you know change the numbers yourself, but they sell special dice. They sell T-shirts and stuff like that. And you can, of course, pay money for a physical copy of the book if you'd like, and I certainly would suggest people do so because it's a really good book. But, uh, yeah, if you want to get into gaming cheap, Fate Core is a pretty good way to go. All right, then let's get down to brass tacks and talk about specifically what you, Randy, are doing with Fate Core. Uh, these days, are you running games or are you in games or both? Uh, it's a bit of both. Right now, I am running two games. Um, so one of which, uh, one I'm going to talk about a little bit more, is, uh, is a game that I call, and I apologize in advance if I get your podcast sued for copyright infringement, I call it Spaceward Ho! Uh, which it turns out is also the name of a sci-fi like RTS or something from like 1994 that is still running. So sorry guys, I didn't mean to steal your name. I swear it was accidental. Oh, you did not uh, know that there was a spaceward ho when you started your campaign. I did not. No. Like, like original. I've thought up spaceward ho. <laughs> yeah, I was really excited because I thought it was a great name. Um, <laughs> spaceward ho, my version, is uh, I'm going to call it a Star Control inspired sci-fi comedy game. Um, it starts with a pretty similar premise. Evil aliens showed up out of the blue, conscripted some other evil aliens, took over the galaxy, and locked everyone away on their home worlds, and left a bunch of people kind of stranded in the galaxy. And this picks up 200 years later, after the evil aliens have disappeared, and people are kind of starting to look up from their hidden colonies and their secret star bases and say, hey, we can maybe uh, live our lives a little bit again. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the player characters... Uh, are aboard uh, the infamous racing ship, the Savage Heart, uh, having wacky adventures across the galaxy on behalf of their mysterious benefactor, a nameless, faceless force who tells them cool places to go sometimes. And other times they ignore him and just blow stuff up. Uh, and do you, so do you, this is something that you've created. You've written this out. Like, for instance, you know who the mysterious benefactor is. You know where the evil aliens went. Uh, this is all yours, right? 100% mine, except for the parts I blatantly stole from other science fiction. Uh, what have you blatantly stolen from other science fiction? Well, I mean, I mentioned that Star Control inspired, and there might be a race of crystalline people and a race of robot people and a race, <laughs> a race of blue space gypsies. I don't know. I mean, like some of that stuff might show up in some form or fashion or exactly like that. Um, uh, and so are your players, uh, I presume this is uh, sort of episodic, like today when we, when we sit down and play, we're going to this planet. Next time we play, we're going to that planet. Is that kind of how it works? Yep. Actually, it was kind of designed to be a little bit of a modular campaign. I keep a pretty large player pool. We're up to six right now. And it's, I don't want to call it like red shirt missions, but it's kind of like the away team missions in Star Trek. Today, we're going down to this crazy planet with a Greek demigod running a crazy resort. And, uh, you know, next week, we're going to go to a planet where a bunch of plant people create their fertilizer and try to blow it up. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's super episodic. Uh, they play a bunch of wacky, crazy characters from all these these weird races that we, you know, kind of conspired to co-create. Um, and uh, and they have crazy adventures, and it's awesome. We've been playing for about two and a half years, about twice a month. I think I counted, and we're up to like 70-something sessions or something like that. It's been a ton of fun. When they go to a planet, when you, when you sit down to play, uh, tell me about the process of coming up with that day's adventure or scenario. Uh, how do you create what you're going to do on a planet? 
Um, I obviously I take a lot of inspiration from science fiction properties that I've read. Um, and sometimes I might accidentally just kind of recreate something. This has happened pretty recently, actually. Um, I knew that I wanted them to finally meet their mysterious benefactor, and I wanted to be stuck somewhere super weird. So I had uh, I, I made up like a, a really goofy-looking uh, numerical name for a moon they were going to travel to. And uh, one of the players looked at it, and he said, you know, he was kind of like eyeballing the numbers, trying to like lead speak, turn them into a word. He said, that kind of looks like showbiz. I was like, showbiz, I like that. Spend the next week at home planning for this. And I basically created a moon that was created by aliens who didn't quite legally purchase the rights to a bunch of old Hollywood movies from the humans. <laughs> oh, my God, Randy. <laughs> and recreated what they thought like classic Hollywood-era films were like using a bunch of crappy rundown androids, which, of course, malfunctioned when the aliens left. And now you've got this giant movie-themed uh, theme park uh, full of murderous androids and all the crazy adventures that go down there. And so I had like, you know, a Blade Runner section and like a Western section and jungle section. And about like 20 minutes into the session, all the older players on my table were like, Randy, have you ever seen a movie called Westworld? And I said, never. <laughs> uh, so that was the day that I learned about Yul Brenner and the second time that I ran into co-inspiration. Um, so yeah, nope. I mean it's it's you take a tiny nugget of an idea and you kind of let it spiral out from there, and fate is really good about letting it spiral in crazy ways. You don't have to do a ton of prep. You can kind of play with what goes on at the table. Now, so you've got what, what it sounds like here this uh, this great setting. Do you also have a story in mind, or does like do you have this idea of obviously you have a beginning for how you're going to get the players into this situation? Uh, do you have a sense for where the story will go? Are you super freeform? Is it real jazzy like where you're improving as you go, or do you write down a story and have some intent to get them to a specific place? So I'm actually into that question by talking a little bit more about Fate Core first. Mm -hmm. One of the cool things about Fate Core is that the traditional way to start a game of it is to do game creation with your players. So everybody makes their characters like normal. They tell some stories about how all their characters met, and they actually write down aspects based on the stories of each other's lives they were involved with. But then you also create the setting collaboratively, and you write down what the big problems are and the immediate problems are and how the characters are going to get involved in those problems. So I came to them with sort of the basis of the setting. You know, the 30-second the elevator speech I gave you when we started talking about this is about what I gave them. And I asked, well, do you guys want to be like galaxy saviors? Do you want to be like the crew of the Firefly? And they basically said that they wanted to have wacky, almost like Star Trek gone wrong missions every week. And so I thought to myself, okay, I can roll with that. The Mysterious Benefactor was a was sort of like a quick Charlie's Angels way to get them moving along on sort of like an episode of the week type stuff. Mm -hmm. But as time has gone on, I've tried to do a little bit of like mid-90s TV, and amidst all these Monster of the Week episodes, start to fill in some mythos. So there is a story that I've had in mind. Uh, this is actually, this whole world comes out of a book I tried and failed to write years ago. Um, so there is sort of this background story that the characters keep almost kind of stumbling on. And they're not particularly traditional heroes or, or even necessarily all super good people. But uh, they're kind of getting wrapped up in it now, and I don't want to spoil it for, that, for them if any of them have listened to this, but they're starting to move a little bit more rapidly toward an end game, and they're starting to uncover some kind of dark secrets about the aliens who conquered us and uh, you know the origins of some really nasty stuff out there in, in our version of hyperspace. And uh, I think that they're not going to be able to avoid uh, either going full hero or full villain for much longer. Uh, is this going to end? Like, is there is there an ending here? Like, will it will it just stop? 
I would prefer to go about as long as my players want to go, and that Monster of the Week format lets you vamp a lot. I do think that at a certain point, that larger overarching plot will probably run its course, and I will basically go to them at that point and say, so do you kind of want to continue on in your galaxy post-big thing and make your poor GM think of something else? Or would you like to maybe start over with new characters or go on to a different setting? Um, this is a really good group of people. I'm really glad that I found all of them, so I would really hate to just close the game and never say, say anything to them again. Right. Um, and you say this is a, a, a tenet of Fate Core, this idea that you sit down with your players and you discuss what do you guys want to do, what, what sort of tone do you want, what are some situations, some problems we would have with this setting. Like Fate Core encourages you to do that? It does, absolutely. It's, it's really all about collaboration. So if, if I had to give the game a downside, mm-hmm. is that if you're a player who's been playing stuff like D&D for years, uh, where you might be used to sitting down and listening to your GM say, and you enter the tavern, and an elf wants to give you a magic sword for killing the dragon, and here's the entire story from that elf. Let me read it to you now. Um, it might be a little bit unnerving to have your characters walk into a tavern in fake core, and the GM say, there's an elf there with a curious scar. One of you gave it to him. How'd you do that? I, that is so, that is just, because uh, my experience as a kid playing D&D is I create something and I hand it down almost divinely to the other players. This idea that, that they are collaborating with me. I mean, in a way, it's beautiful, Randy, and it's very, it's very improv theatery in, in a way. Uh, but it's, that's really strange for me to hear. Yeah, and you know, fate supports uh, you know varying degrees of that. But I think to some extent, if you really want to embrace the system, you've got to pull the players in. You've got to let them create cool aspects about their characters, and you've got to let them create cool aspects about the world. And you've got to take the weird stuff they tell you and roll with it. So, um, for, for instance, uh, as a sort of an anecdote, one of my players... Uh, played uh, in a race of robots. And and the backstory for them that I gave was that all the robots woke up 20,000 years ago on a planet full of houses and cars and factories and no people, just one billion robots with no memory of how they got there. That was their entire backstory. Um, And so she decided that that their entire race was terrified that they were like murder bots because she was like, every culture in the galaxy has science fiction stories about murder bots. What if we're the murder bots? What if we killed our progenitors and, and, you know, like left the homeworld bereft of any life and took it over? Um, which was totally not at all what I had envisioned. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. you can absolutely bet that uh, there was a pretty big plot twist about six months ago that totally makes it seem like they might be murder bots. Now, that was a plot twist a year and a half coming, totally based off of one player's moderate paranoia. Right, right. Now, let, let's talk some logistics, because you say you've got a, a group of, of, like, six players that are consistent. Uh, surely... When you're meeting twice a month, like some of them can't make it. Uh, d- how difficult is it to, to – that, that must throw a wrench in the works pretty frequently, right? You know, honestly, it's a game about improvisation and adaptation, and I'm lucky that we're running an episodic spaceship game. So, you know, maybe this week the robot character is on the spaceship recharging. Uh, maybe this week uh, those two characters got called away on a side mission, and they're handling that. Every so often, we will leave a session kind of in the middle of stuff, and somebody doesn't show up. And it doesn't happen often enough that it's a huge problem, but I'll usually, as a GM, just try to think of some weird, goofy reason their character got kidnapped or pulled out of the action. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, when the game started, one of our players was actually out of the country for like the first month the campaign was running, which was like, oh, no, what are we going to do? 
the first arc of the story was totally just a rescue mission for their character. And when they came back was the day they rescued that character. Mm-hmm. You roll with it. Uh, when do you guys play? Is it an evenings thing? Is it a weekend afternoons? Uh, we play uh, Saturdays uh, at noon, which is about as early as I can manage on a Saturday. Um, I've run games during the week, and it's totally great. But, you know, we are all working adults, and sometimes you leave work at 7 o'clock, and all you want to do is, like, eat food and sleep and not create interesting fiction for three hours. How much of a problem is it that you're playing a game and people are checking their cell phones? Um. Because Fate focuses a lot on spotlighting characters and saying this is kind of your character's moment to shine, um, A, they, as a GM, gives you a great way to get someone's attention who's on their cell phone. But B, it also means that sometimes uh, people don't have to be quite as super engaged in the moment. But I like to think that the stuff we're doing is interesting and funny enough that really my players are usually pretty engaged throughout. Now, whenever I run like one-shots with Fate, you totally have that kind of thing. If it's getting super disruptive, I think you just have to kind of ask them not to do that. But, you know, I mean, we're all adults here, and people are going to spend their free time how they want to spend it. And, you know, if they're not invested in the thing that they're theoretically doing it for fun, that's kind of on them. Okay, I now want to know, Randy, tell me about, and you can change the names to protect anyone if you want, tell me about one of the worst-case scenarios with a problem player that you have had in your career as someone running games. Because I'm sure there are a couple of them that bother you. Like, what's one that was a really a pain in the ass, a uh, problem player? Okay, I will tell you a story because I can turn it around at the end. Because I don't okay. like speaking ill of people. Okay. Um, I was joining a new game run by one of the coolest guys I know here in Raleigh, and I was super excited about it. And uh, it was sort of like a more traditional, you know, like old school D&D recreation system. Um, but we decided that we were going to create the world collaboratively using some rules that he had made up. Um, we'd like to do that kind of thing around here, apparently, I guess. Um, so we all show up to this world creation. And one guy just immediately, like, locks into this zone, something that has been brewing in his skull probably since the day he was born, and just spouts forth for like hours like every single thing he already knows what it looks like what it sounds like where they came from who they are and nobody else really needs to bring ideas to the table because this guy's got all the ideas we need mm-hmm. and that's a little bit unnerving as why I just like totally ch- take charge of a table like that I mean you know we're all a bunch of nerds here like people don't generally have that much like social confidence <laughs> but you know this guy just he was a mile a minute for like three hours straight and it felt like by the end of it we we're like man this whole world is just going to be his stuff and Moreover, that's kind of a concerning trait for a guy to show at a table, like to be that kind of aggressively take charge. Mm-hmm. We get into the game a couple weeks later, and the guy is one of the most incredible, devoted, locked-in role players I have ever seen. And yeah, his character is steeped in all the weird mythology that he made up, but he is using it week after week to do really cool stuff and play this really awesome, well-thought-out character, and he was an absolute pleasure to hang out with every day after that. It was great. Oh, that's not much of a nightmare story, Randy. But you know, that first week, I was positive it was going to be horrible. Right, right. People can surprise you, I guess. Fair enough. They can. Uh, all right, what is the next spe- the specifics of the next game you are running or playing? Like, we're, uh, we're talking here on a, what is this, a Thursday night. What is in your immediate future? Uh, in exactly one week, 
I'll be running another game. Uh, this is another group of people I've been playing with for about three years. And about a year ago, we decided we were going to start doing rotating GMing in, you guessed it, a world we created together. Um, so it's my current slot to uh, to be running this game. And it is a super weird world. I mean, like, ultra gonzo, just weird crap all the time, 24-7. So the, uh, the, the captain of the airship they're on is, uh, is a disgraced fashion designer prince, kind of. Um, who sold the souls of his crew in order to regain his glory. He has just regained his glory and returned to his fashion designer crazy homeland and is about to get sent on the most ridiculous, crazy, stupid fashion designer quest you could possibly imagine. Yeah, I have no idea what to do with that, Randy. (laughs) I'm not going to lie to you. Whenever they handed me the GMing reins, I wasn't really sure either. Will you be dressing up? Uh, I will not, although I will admit that I have. What? Come on, okay. What, have you ever worn a cape? So I thankfully don't own a cape, so I avoided that. Um, the RTR group I mentioned, you know, I said they run these uh, season arcs of stories. Mm-hmm. The most recent one was a teen superheroes game. Uh, so we were all playing, like, high school superheroes. <laughs> and I played a hardcore wannabe goth kid. So, you know, I've still got long hair, so every week I would take my hair down and do the full, like, you know, slash of hair in front of the left eye thing. And uh, in the last session uh, we played of that, it was uh, your characters all go to the winter formal and have to find a date. So my character totally had to break out a tie and was super uncomfortable. So I decided to break out a tie and also be super uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, Randy, have you ever LARPed? I have not, and uh, I don't think that I could stand to be outside long enough to do it. Sorry, LARPers. What if it was indoors? What if we had like a big warm barn, you didn't have to endure nature? Would you LARP then? I might. I really like collaborative storytelling, and I like interacting with people in a role-playing game, and I don't think you can get much more interactive than that, but it's not something I've ever done. Yeah, frankly, I was surprised when you said you hadn't, because you sound like the perfect candidate for it, with the theater background, how obviously comfortable you are with improv. Um, do uh, Do you ever miss theater, or does this kind of satisfy that craving for you? Oh, this is totally scratching that itch. It's scratching the I'm a really crappy novel writer itch. I don't have to write novels anymore. I can just force other people to listen to them in a game. Um, Yeah, it's also scratching the social itch. I'm I'm an extrovert. It's like the perfect hobby. Sure. Well, uh, good luck with your airship fashion designer coming out of his period of disgrace. Uh, you you, You must write down notes, right? Like you've got pages of notes. How do you go into that? Um, so it really depends on the game. You know, back whenever I ran Pathfinder, yeah, I would come to each and every single game with like a stack of monsters and a stack of plot and like this really obscene looking notebook, series of notebooks that got increasingly large as time went on. Uh, with Fate Core, I tend to roll in with an outline, probably one page, um, and a stack of note cards to write aspects on and make up monsters on as we go. That's, that's about it. Okay. So again, Fate Core, awesome. And you're not you're not using miniatures. Do you have a set of painted miniatures for tactical combat? Uh, we don't. One player did kind of hand assemble a Lego figurine for his werewolf racer character, uh, and so he does have that on the table at all times. How do you so during combat you're not like exp- you, you don't have like layouts of the combat. You're not doing tactical battles. You could get kind of tactical with fate, but it operates in something called zones, which is just sort of like. 
an area of space that matters to the plot. So if you're in a warehouse, maybe it's like the first level of the warehouse, the second level of the warehouse, which of one of those two are your characters in. Moving between them can be complicated. If there's a stack of boxes aspect, you have to roll athletics to cover the boxes. But it's not super tentative. It's really more about keeping up with the action and doing really, really crazy stuff, like toppling over the boxes. And you're not going to, like roll strength to see how many boxes you topple over, you're going to roll and say a bunch of boxes topple over and deal with it. So do you draw, because one of the things that I remember enjoying uh, was drawing maps and like making elf bases and drawing the different nations and the geography and stuff. Like I loved maps. Uh, do you have any of that with Fate Core? Some GMs absolutely do. Uh, and some of them really revel in it. I'm going to let you know a secret about me, Tom. I have exactly zero visual imagination. My mind is a black slate of nothingness at all times, uh, which, as it turns out, makes it really hard to do stuff like this. Um, so my art would mostly consist of some childish-looking scribbles that are hazy and indistinct at best. And I will do that in the case of a really complicated scenario, but I try to avoid it because it's just bad. See, I, I don't think I, I don't believe you for a second. I think anybody who's ever looked at a map can think, okay, here, you know, like it's not, it's not a matter of being a good artist. It's like here's a door and here's a window, and then we're going to have here is the area where people sleep, and uh, like you create these settings, and yeah, I mean, you started with, I started with graph paper. I don't know if people still do that, but I would just yeah. make a little dungeon, and then eventually I was like, oh, well, why is this room here? What, what would be in a room next door to it? Oh, well, where do the orcs sleep? Um, oh, well, what happens? What do they do for recreation? Who are their neighbors? And it sort of spins out from there, and I'm just drawing little maps of areas and, and scenarios. And I just loved – I wouldn't say it was necessarily artistic, but just kind of situational, geographical, like geography. Uh, I love that part of, of uh, you know, drawing things out and just having a physical view of this area. Um, so I don't believe for a second you're not good at that. You know, it, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, it reminds me of one of my favorite RPG-related stories. Um, people can Google it. It's, I think it's called, like, King of, King of the Bling or something like that. And it's it's sort of an after-action report written by a GM using, uh, using another old-school Renaissance system, Adventure Conqueror King, and it was fully randomized. Every part of the game was randomized. So he used a random map generator, and then he would do the kind of stuff like you were talking about. Like, the random map generator spout, spits out a room that says it contains 17 halflings and a dead orc. <laughs> and he would, on the fly, try to create an interesting story to explain why there are 17 starving halflings and one dead orc in the room. Because <laughs> um, it's clearly, like, in, like, the 17th level of a dungeon, they probably don't have a lot of resources. Right. Uh, yeah, that, that sounds like you would run into the pitfalls there of randomly generated terrain. I would just go play No Man's Sky if I, rather than do that. Yeah. Wow. Well, uh, Randy, hard. yeah, yeah, that is very harsh. I, I apologize for that to No Man's Sky. Uh, so, uh, like I said, good luck uh, the the coming scenario you're doing. Uh, thank you for explaining some of this to me. It is Fate Core. Now, I have a, uh, I confess, I don't know if you're saying C-O-R-P-S or C-O-R-E. C-O-R-E. It is a sort of the core system about which you can build more stuff. Okay, that makes more sense. And this is by Evil Hat. You can Google Evil Hat and find a, a free PDF of this uh, for folks who are curious. So Yeah, absolutely. And if you want to chat about all the crazy campaigns and, and one-shots that I've run in this, and there's some, just going to say, there's some really good one-shots, including one about a heavy metal band in a fantasy universe trying to ascend to godhood. Uh, you know, I'm on the quarter of three forums. They're great. 
uh, which uh, I want to leave listeners with this. Why on earth are you named, and where is it from? Uh, what is Armando Penblade? So I was 18, maybe 17, and decided I needed a really cool name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm half Hispanic, so Armando just sounds cool, right? I mean, who could possibly not think Armando doesn't sound awesome? And then you see, like, I like to write a lot, and, you know, that was sort of like my weapon of choice. You know, pen is mightier than the sword. Penblade, it's got the best of both worlds. Uh, it, see, I, I assumed, I mean, it sound, it is such, I'm not being the least bit facetious, it is such a cool name that I assumed you got it from some book or something. That it was something that a professional came up with. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to lie to you, Tom, but the number of times this has happened to me just in this conversation between Spaceward Ho and Westworld, that could easily be a thing. Yeah. Uh, well, listeners, thank you so much for hanging out uh, with me and Randy. Like you said, you can find them at quarter3.com. And if you are in the Raleigh, North Carolina area, Randy, what is this group, real quick, uh, that you mentioned of RPGers. How how could someone find this? Raleigh Tabletop Role Players. Find us on meetup.com. All right, there we go. Thanks for joining me, Randy. Thanks for having me. For the king, we will ride to the dark.